What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and today we have two Earth Day-related stories for you and one special uh, story time story. First, we are going to discuss how we at MSCI are monitoring the world's carbon emissions, and then we discuss how China is at the center of the fight against climate change. And to round that all off, we have our first ever and maybe last ever Earth Day story time with Jillian Malad. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. So Thursday was Earth Day, and around the world, 7.7 billion people joined together to encourage each other to demonstrate support for environmental protection. It's one of the largest global events that we have, and it's an event uh, that started with a hopeful beginning in 1970, when the globe's population was only about 3.7 billion. And the event was sort of more niche then. Now Earth Day is much more mainstreamed, and the days leading up to it are marked by companies and countries announcing ambitious plans to try and lower all of our collective carbon footprints. Most have been saying they will try to achieve net zero targets, a plan that centers on lowering absolute carbon emissions as close to zero as possible, and then removing any carbon emissions with technologies like carbon capture and storage, or by restoring force. You just have to find a way to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Our parent company, MSCI, put out its commitment to hit net zero carbon emissions before 2040 this week as well. The details of that commitment were actually explored by my colleagues in the MSCI Prospectus podcast. So definitely go check that out if you want to know more about how and why we made our net zero pledge. The thing is, though, MSCI's Scope 1 and Scope 2 carbon footprint is relatively small since our industry is not like one of the direct heavy polluters such as energy materials or another version of a heavy industrial sector. But MSCI is in a unique position because of where it sits in the capital markets, which is what I wanted to talk about today because in addition to MSCI's net zero commitment, it made another announcement about how it would help track the globe's progress toward decarbonization. And the head of ESG research, Linda Ealing Lee, was part of the planning committee that decided on this measurement move. So I called her up to hear more about it. And what she told me was that the main crux of the decision was on a discussion about what role capital markets play in our warming world. There is an important role for the capital markets in affecting this change. Um, because what we're talking about when we talk about net zero is really a complete transformation of our economy. Um, and really the last time we had a complete transformation of our economy was um, the Industrial Revolution. And in that revolution, you know, capital markets really played an incredibly important role. And we really feel like this time around, um, capital markets, and that means the uh, owners of capital and the providers of capital, as well as the intermediaries and the seekers of capital, the companies really all need to very immediately um, also play an important role um, in effecting this transition to net zero. So in a practical sense, what that means is we're going to be putting out a progress report on the 9,000 global publicly listed companies that are in the index called the MSCI All Country World Index Investable Market Index. I know it sounds a bit weird, but that's its name. I'm going to call it MSCA Aqui IMI. That's what everybody calls it because no one wants to say that whole name out loud every single time. 
And if you're thinking, well, what's an index? An index is basically a collection of companies that are used by investors to track certain economic regions, let's call them. You know, if you have the S&P 500, you're looking at the top 500 companies that are domiciled in the U.S. The MSCI Acqui IMI captures large, mid, and small cap represented companies that are across 23 developed markets and 27 emerging markets. And its index makes up about $70 trillion of market value. So what that means is it's a good, comprehensive, and objective benchmark for public companies throughout the market. And so it's a good starting point for taking an accounting of the global economy's emissions and how they're progressing toward a low-carbon economy. So what we're going to do is we're going to measure what those companies' contribution is to global carbon emissions. At the moment, those 9,000 companies emit approximately 11.2 gigatons, that's billions of tons, of carbon dioxide every year. To put that into perspective, the global emissions of energy related to carbon dioxide was 59.1 gigatons for all of the world for 2019. And what our model indicates is that without any changes to current practices, the carbon emissions of those MSCI Acqui IMI companies could reach 16.8 gigatons of CO2 by 2050, leading to a planet that would warm approximately 3.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. First of all, I think it's very important that people understand that the MSCI Acqui IMI is a measure, an objective measure of all the public companies um, in the world and what their market value is um, at a given point in time. Right. And so the reason we also think that this is also can be a great measure of progress is that at any given point in time, we know um, then how how much emissions these companies actually emit into the world. Over time, if companies do actually meet their emissions, net zero emissions goals, you really should see the emissions of those companies coming down, right? And so that IMI, um, the MSA IMI by 2050 would essentially be a net zero benchmark. Until that point, the idea is with this explicit measurement and reporting that those allocating capital to the MSCA Acqui IMI will now, once they see these progress reports that we put out all the time, uh, they will now need to decide about the future their capital is helping to grow. So a pension fund that is investing for those planning to retire in like 30 years, if they're putting their money in a, in a capital market that isn't planning for the effects of climate change, will that cause them some distress? Or maybe it won't cause them any distress. It really will be up to them. There is also the engagement angle. It's easier to engage with a heavy polluting company if you have an industry standard to point to on how they can reduce their emissions. We will show the companies that are, are the furthest, you know, uh, lagging on their, on their progress. And then we'll show the ones that are actually um, doing the best because there are a lot of companies that I think will be very committed to changing their businesses and really actually seizing the opportunity because I think one of the things we forget too is that um, just as with the last um, economic transformation um, and actually more recently through the digital revolution um, and the internet revolution, there's a lot of opportunity here. I mean, there is, there is um, there's going to be entire segments of the economy um, where new tools and services and, and products are going to have to be invented. And um, and there's going to be a lot of um, 
a lot of uh, investment opportunities and a lot of economic opportunities. And so I think that for investors, this isn't really just about risk management, um, because it is, because it's a, obviously an exist, uh, existential threat, but it's also a huge, huge economic opportunity um, in terms of the reallocation of capital. That economic opportunity is actually on display right now. I was recording this while John Kerry, President Biden's global climate change envoy, spoke at a virtual Earth Day summit. And he ended the event by noting that more than 50% of global GDP today committed to take emissions cuts and measures to put their country on a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming line. And that he also said we need to rely on the 20 most developed countries that equal about 80% of all those global emissions to reduce their collective footprint. He ended by saying the U.S. is number two in emissions and that we know that and we have to act on that. What he didn't mention was that China is actually number one in global carbon emissions. And that is likely because, in part, the political environment between the U.S. and China is fraught. But the two countries now seem much more aligned on the problem of climate change than ever before. Because President Xi agreed to attend the virtual summit and there he gave a speech saying that his country will strictly control coal-fired power generation projects and strictly limit the increase in coal consumption in the next five years and phase it down in the following years, as well as a number of other plans that China is implementing to push down its carbon footprint. Because China wants to be at net zero by 2060, and it has a lot of ambitious goals to meet by 2025. And as China goes, so too does the climate. So I want to talk about China now. And to do that, I called up uh, my colleague Miranda Carr, who is one of our heads of ESG research focusing on Asia, and asked her about what is currently happening in China with regards to the climate and how China can meet its climate goals that it put on display during Biden's climate summit and in its economic plans for the future. Well, how China can achieve its net zero target varies very differently from the short to the long term. Because in the short term, so we're talking about the next five-year plan, the the targets are, are quite achievable, 13.5% reduction in energy intensity, 18% reduction in carbon emissions by 2025. And that can be achieved in mainly three ways. So you have the reduction in energy intensity of heavy industry. And by the way, the move doesn't have to be that revolutionary. We calculated that if China's heavy industry were to become as energy efficient as its Japan or South Korean neighbors, for example, China could cut its CO2 emissions by 20% alone. You've also got um, the shift away from heavy industry in the economy in any case where the consumer sector, the services sector, um, is taking up a much bigger proportion of the overall overall economy, which is then lower energy intensive anyway. Then finally, you've also got um, rebalancing of the energy towards clean energy, which is a key part of the um, targets for the five-year plan. And that's taking the current 15% non-fossil fuel energy supply going up to 25% by 2030 and 20% over the over the next five years. And bearing in mind, China already has one of the largest installed bases of, of wind and solar power and some of the leading technologies, then that's a very sort of achievable target um, in, in the short term. 
Okay, so let me just collate all those targets that Miranda just mentioned. And by the way, remember that these are the targets that China set for its emissions reductions in the short term to be met by 2025. They have a long-term goal to get to net zero by 2060 that I'll talk about in a minute. But to achieve these emissions reductions in the short term, China can reduce the energy intensity of its heavy industry or it can rebalance its energy portfolio away from fossil fuels to cleaner fuel sources or it can shift away from heavy industry in general on mainland China. That last one is actually called emissions offshoring. It's where you reduce the emissions in your region, but you don't do anything to actually reduce the global absolute emissions. And that kind of caught my attention. So before we went on, I wanted to ask Miranda about it and what she thought about the possibility that China might do that. To be fair to China, it is the factor of the world. And a lot of developed countries have done that to China. They've moved their factories to mainland China, thus reducing their overall regional emissions. But what Miranda said is that, indeed, this is a concern, but it's one that is dissipating. Yes, there is a lot of concern around China's One Belt, One Road scheme, that basically they'll use, under that scheme, they'll be funding coal-fired power stations in Indonesia or elsewhere um, throughout the world at the same time as they're trying to reduce the build-out of coal-fired power stations in China itself. Um, But there's growing pressure both domestically and internationally uh, for them to address some of those issues. And interestingly, just at the speech at the Bio Forum this week, um, the PBOC said it would increase its allocation of green bonds in China's foreign exchange reserves, which is the three trillion which is invested primarily in U.S. treasuries, but also has quite wide representation in sort of the corporate bond market and um, you know other international debt, um, and it's also going to limit its investment in high carbon assets as well. And so this is part of the overall shift in order to try to decarbonize China's financial system um, and also it's, it's, it's reduce its investment in carbon intensive industries. There's also the long-term goals that I mentioned that China has to be completely carbon neutral as a country by 2060. To do that, Miranda tells me, China needs to rely on two things, carbon capture and storage and their emissions trading system. Here's the rub. At the moment, the International Energy Agency states that China can only reduce about 25% of its emissions with carbon capture and storage over the long term. So they have to aggressively invest in the technology at the moment because there are only about 20 projects ongoing right now and they're really expensive and not feasible on the large scale. Then there is the emissions trading scheme that was originally launched in 2017 in a small number of cities. This year, it's going to be launched on a national level for China's coal and gas-fired power plants, which actually account for about 40% of China's emissions and about 12% of the world's emissions. There are a couple reasons for why China is fighting so aggressively to reduce their emissions and relying on these two systems. First, there's what is happening throughout the world. The realization that too much of our energy sector is still reliant on fossil fuels and that this will cause a lot of damage in the long term. And the second is that the move away from inefficient assets, I'm talking energy inefficient assets, could create chaos for global economies. Well, Matt Jun, who's the director of the Green Finance Committee um, of the China Society of Finance and Banking, so and a key spokesperson on on climate change and and, and these issues, um, he was highlighting the major transformation that would have to happen in China's economy, but also its sort of industrial landscape, in order to achieve this net zero target. 
And obviously that raises risks in terms of the, you've got a heavy reliance, you've still got 60, over 60% of um, energy is, is from the coal sector. You've got heavy, heavy reliance on coal in the, in the industrial sector. And so that transformation from a, from a carbon intensive to a, to a net zero economy means that you're going to be left with you know potential uh, stranded assets in the in the in the energy sector and also in the inefficient um, manufacturing sector and that's something that we've already seen i mean there's more environmental protection measures introduced just over even the last 5 years and you've had a lot of the inefficient sort of outdated capacity shutting down and bankruptcies and you know reorgan- industrial reorganizations um, happening, you know, for a lot of those traditional sectors, and that's the kind of thing which is going to raise financial risks and default risks in the economy as you get into that um, long-term transformation. So we can actually look at those financial risks right now by using a tool that we have called the Climate Value at Risk, and it's a tool that we use to calculate how much economic value of an investment portfolio would be eroded by the initial various catastrophes caused by certain levels of global warming. And what Miranda did is she did this calculation, the climate value at risk, for our MSCI China A index. We looked at the MSCI China index, which covers the mainland Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese, and also the US listed companies. And obviously, you still have quite a big representation in there of um, energy, heavy industry, and some of the sort of high climate risk sectors. Um, which account for sort of quite a significant proportion of your of your portfolio, and using our two per, two degree warming aligned with the Paris benchmark uh, climate var model, then there's basically nine point three percent of the portfolio is is at risk um, from um, under that scenario, um, and then if you go down to one point five degrees, um, then that value at risk increases to minus 13%. So obviously it shows a sort of big risks, particularly for a lot of the, the energy materials and transportation stocks in the index um, on, under that warming potential. And interestingly, it's also focused very much, it's not just on, the, on things like the carbon price and the carbon emissions, it's also the physical climate risk where you have about 6% under the two degrees scenario is actually at risk from things like coastal flooding, particularly in the eastern provinces of China. So 9.3% might seem like a little bit, but to put that into context, the economic erosion in the Eurozone in 2020 due to COVID was 9%. And that 9.3% Miranda quoted would be a sustained downturn. Okay, so before we go, I have to hit you with some nice Earth Day content here. So my colleague, Jillian Malad, she read the Lorax to her kid, and I asked her to tape it. And actually, the Lorax came out, and it was published in 1971, the year after the first Earth Day. So I thought it was a great thing for her to read. Please listen to it. You know, usually here's where I do my spiel about rating, reviewing, uh, subscribing, but forget that. Enjoy this read. Thanks, as always, for listening. And... Have a great Earth Week, Earth Day, Earth Year. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place through a hole in the smog without leaving a trace. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with one word, unless, whatever that meant, well, I just couldn't guess. 
That was long, long ago, but each day since that day, I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years while my buildings have fallen apart, I've worried about it with all of my heart. But now, says the Wunsler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better, it's not. So Cash calls the Wunsler. He lets something fall. It's a truffula seed. It's the last one of all. You're in charge of the last of the truffula seeds, and truffula trees are what everyone needs. Plant a new truffula, treat it with care, give it clean water, and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest, protect it from axes that hack. Then the Lorax and all of his friends may come back. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.